I'm Grant Haver. I'm Zoe Weinberg. And this is Next in Foreign Policy, the podcast where the next generation of national security and foreign policy leaders talk about the issues of today and tomorrow. This week, coming off the heels of the Thanksgiving holiday, Zoe and I thought instead of getting a guest, you could just get us this week. So we're just going to talk about something we're following in the news and then just sort of throw it back and forth and pick each other's brains about it. So the first thing that I was really following throughout the break when I could catch it was the World Cup, which kicked off last Sunday, um, I guess two Sundays ago. And there was a bunch of noise before the World Cup because Qatar's human rights record is awful. They functionally don't have citizenship for the vast majority of people that live there. In the last 10 years since getting awarded the World Cup, there are about 6,000 migrant workers who died in the construction of World Cup sites. Being queer is illegal. There are just a bunch of problems with Qatar. And let alone the fact that they bribed FIFA officials to get this World Cup in the first place. So it just was a huge mess. They've since banned alcohol sales, which makes sense given that it's Qatar. But that also caused a huge blow up. Many of the European sides that were going to compete were going to wear a One Love armband, which was in support of LGBTQ rights. FIFA looked down upon that. They sent a letter ahead of time that basically said, shut up and dribble. The Europeans were going to continue to, to go for it until FIFA made clear that anyone wearing the armband would immediately get a yellow card, which is a penalty in soccer, which could have led to them being suspended from the tournament. So. Leading up to the World Cup, had very low expectations. Wait, Grant, before you go on, I'm curious where you fall on this. Like, I agree that, you know, giving a country the honor of hosting a major world sporting event and and sort of choosing in some ways to brush a lot of the human rights violations and other other lack of freedoms under the rug is is pretty problematic. However, I guess I wonder, do you think that by having the World Cup in a place like Qatar kind of forces the issue? Like it it brings to the surface some of these questions about policies that are, you know, anti-LGBTQ or human rights records or, you know, the the uh, treatment of migrant workers that otherwise we just wouldn't be talking about at all, right? Like I wonder whether it actually like forces a country that is trying to make an entry into the world stage to actually confront and grapple with some of the issues that they have internally or whether it just enables them to kind of like fully or, or, or just like more entrench those positions, further entrench those positions and actually get FIFA and other international institutions on board with, with their legitimacy. I don't know. That's such a, a hard question to answer because it sort of all depends on what happens next, right? In 2008, when Beijing got the their first Olympics, that was like a huge coming out party for China. And of course, it's only gotten worse from there. Like China has in no way gotten better in terms of their human rights record, in terms of their impact on the environment. Um, it's just pretty much all gotten worse. You know, you can go back to the ill-fated Berlin games for the Olympics to also, you know, highlight a a bad example uh, for those things. So it really kind of depends in my mind what 
the international community does just because like, yeah, like I can tweet and post about the human rights issues in Qatar, but if, you know, this is of the moment disappears, then like, who cares, right? Like there are a bunch of problems in the world. You know, Myanmar was very big, uh, prominent in the Obama agenda for opening up. You know, Aung San Suu Kyi was seen as the uh, hero for the democratic movement there, then was at least complicit in genocide of the Rohingya, and it just sort of dropped off. And that's not to say that there's we can't do more there. There's just, like, not a lot of willpower to be focused there. And Qatar, the other thing about Qatar is that it sits on, like, a lake of natural gas, which is important geostrategically, at least at this moment. So, so I don't know. What do you think? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I guess I appreciate that, that this is, that having the World Cup there is focusing a lens on some of these geopolitical dynamics, some of these human rights violations and so forth. But yeah, I think I agree with you. It sort of depends what we do with that information. Like now, if we are more aware of the ways in which, just more aware of some of these challenges, like, are we then going to use this as a moment to mobilize and, and for for change or or is this just like further validation of of a country's impunity to bad behavior i don't know but i think it's interesting to to consider but i kind of interrupted you i want to hear you so you went in with low expectations and and now what are you thinking my expectations have only been met right uh with FIFA's president, Gianni Infantino, saying in a press conference that he feels Qatari and he feels migrant worker and he feels gay and he feels all these different things, which just like shown a bright spotlight on the fact that FIFA is just the worst. Like they're just the worst. And I was listening to a podcast and one of the things that they were arguing was that basically this is what you get when you need to have international forums, right? North Korea is in the UN. It's not because everyone loves North Korea, but because they're trying to be an international forum for these type of things. And so it's hard because then I saw the Iran national team not sing their national anthem when it came up and fans in the audience proclaiming the, the slogan of the protests, women, life, freedom. And then the German side, who was going to be wearing these One Love armbands, in the picture, this like picture that they take before every game, they put their hands over their mouths because they felt like they had been muted and prevented from saying what they meant. I don't know. Before the most recent Olympics in China, I wrote this piece that said, like, we shouldn't just diplomatically boycott, we should pull out. And that maybe we should consider doing, a, like, scrapping the whole international sports system because of its corruption and restart a democratic games. And that's good, right? Because it keeps people who are bad out. But then it also prevents these kind of like ground up protests like the Iran team. But also, so Saudi Arabia had this crazy victory against Argentina, like just insane. Like Saudi is ranked 51st and Argentina is ranked third. Like I picked Argentina to go all the way this year. And it was a pretty amazing like underdog moment in sports. Oh, like huge, huge underdog moment. And then what the craziest part was that like the Houthi rebels in Yemen reached out to Saudi and like congratulated them. 
And for those of you who are listening who need a reminder, the Houthis and Saudi-backed, uh, the Saudi-backed central government of Yemen have been at war for like years. It's killed thousands of people. It's plunged a whole country into poverty and famine. And now they're just going to reach out and chat about the soccer match? I don't know. What do you think? Should should we have a democratic-only, human rights-respecting-only games and then don't attend these games? Or should we continue to attend and find ways to push back or support protesters? Well, b- backing up for a second on on the on the Saudi win, and and I also saw that Houthi rebels were were offering their congrats, etc., which seemed quite odd uh, given the circumstances. But it did remind me that I think you know there is there is sort of like regional regional pride and regional loyalties that sometimes maybe we undercount or under under appreciate in the context of like larger conflicts. Okay, whether or not there should be like democratic only games, I think that worries me because it creates a true like us versus them mentality in in the world. And I think already we're seeing further and deeper divisions, you know, emerging in lots of different ways between both democratic and authoritarian or autocratic-ish regimes in the world. And so to me, it doesn't feel like it ends well. I think that's what I'd say. So the World Cup, you know, it requires that you do a, a, a few things in order to qualify, right? That aren't just on the field, right? Like, obviously, Palestine is not recognized as a country that can compete at the World Cup. So you don't think adding not necessarily like a democratic thing, but like a human rights respecting, like even just low bars to participation would be good. You think that would potentially continue to cause this rift? I mean, like clearly this rift between authoritarian and democratic regimes is kind of what the Biden administration is shooting for, right? That's their language. And so I guess the the hard part for me is that the, the systems are so corrupt like even if I even if we agree that maybe like the best thing is to like set a low bar at like don't have the death penalty if you're gay, that like won't get through the corrupt FIFA. Right. Like how do you where do you draw lines? Who decides who's in charge, etc. But to me, I think like those are those are the sort of practical concerns of like how would you implement it? And I actually think the more interesting question is assuming you could implement it in a you know, in an ethical and, and sort of accurate way, uh, is it the right thing to do? I don't know. I, I mean, I, I think what's, what's interesting is it sets up participation in sporting events as sort of like a reward in a, in a way for, for good behavior on a whole host of human rights and civil liberties issues and so forth, which is sort of how the Olympics operates in a way i mean although actually hold up i guess the lack of participation of certain countries in the olympics often has to do with like bad behavior in the context of sports like doping right as opposed to like human rights violations so i don't know this you've given me a lot to think about well why don't we flip the tables what are you following this week I've, i've been following a few things Definitely the protests that are erupting in China, which I think we'll have a chance to talk about a little bit later. But, but one one piece of news that, that um, just broke pretty recently 
is this open letter that was uh, authored by the New York Times and then four European uh, news outlets that essentially is calling on the U.S. government to drop all of its charges against Julian Assange, who's the founder of WikiLeaks, um, for, you know, the publication of these classified and um, diplomatic and and military documents um, that WikiLeaks has, you know, released at various points. And I thought what was sort of interesting about it is the real focus of the, of the, of the argument and of the letter is about, about what is the role of, of essentially the, the press and democracy. And if you can't properly distinguish between a WikiLeaks and a publisher like the New York Times, then should you really be indicting those types of organizations under the Espionage Act? Or should you really only focus charges on the actual, you know, individuals in the government who may have released information that they had access to that they shouldn't have? The Obama-Biden administration's position was was that of the of the former, I guess, which is like prosecuting the the publishers themselves is actually quite challenging and raises a lot of First Amendment issues. But that position was then reversed under the Trump administration. I think as somebody who, you know, is a big fan and supporter of the press, it's, you know, it's given me a lot to think about because it's really an argument about what is healthiest for a democracy when it comes to the balance between privacy and secrecy in the national security context and also the public's right to know. And that's a very tricky one, especially somebody who like focuses on national security. I think, you know, you sort of inherently understand the huge risks that are involved in releasing classified documents in a, you know, in an irresponsible way and the the number of people and, and assets and lives, et cetera, that, that, can potentially be vulnerable as a result of any sort of like reckless, you know, dissemination of information. And at the same time, it is also important for a democracy for there to be whistleblowers and also for publications to not be concerned that they are going to be liable if somebody else decides to leak, right? It's like, who's causing the harm, right? So anyway, I've just been thinking about a lot um, and I'm curious what the response will be from the administration. My understanding of the Assange case was that the reason why they could go after him and not the Times is because generally the Times reporters receive leaks. They do not try to train and give technical assistance to someone in order to leak. So yes. what was your take on that? Yes, that is, you're right. That is a meaningful, a meaningful difference. I guess one question is, can, and I, and I don't know enough about the the like legal history and case law here, but like could a court reasonably distinguish between the two, right? And like what what and like you're right, the New York Times might not be actively training people to, you know, sort of like release classified information, but newspapers also pursue sources in various ways, right? And so where and so where you draw the line, I think is is complicated. If you could say, okay, like this this type of publication or this method of publishing or this set of ethical journalistic standards, you know, meets a bar such that we believe that their publication of leaked documents, you know, takes account of national security risks, is responsible, et cetera. And, and this other type is not, that's interesting. I, I just don't know. I don't know exactly how you would distinguish those things. And, and maybe there, maybe there are, I mean, this is 
revealing, you know, the, the sort of limitations of my own <laughs> well, uh, no, knowledge I, on this topic. But. I mean, I think, I think that's reasonable, but I think if we start going down the, the route of like, can the court really judge this type of thing? We get into a really, really funky place. Because then you're just relying on the executive branch to decide what's classified and decide what what is not in the public's interest. Um, but that sort of brings up the other question I had for you on this, which is, you know, we both are interested in sort of focus on issues around tech and something about cyber inside the government is that it came up as like hyper classified. Right. Everything around technology capabilities in the U.S. government is like overly classified. So how do you think about this as like an overclassification problem? Like, is it that the stuff Assange pulled out, like most of it probably should be classified? But there is a problem we have with the government, especially around tech, about like playing hide the ball. And so how do you think about that as someone who's interested in, in both the tech space and working to push the envelope on tech and, and really help people use tech for good. For sure, overclassification is is a challenge. And I think we've talked about it on some of our our recent episodes. But I I think the persistent tension is between wanting to have an open in you know an open environment for innovation, you know, sort of live by the principles of things like the open source movement and also protect advanced technology that may have national security or geopolitical consequences. What's interesting is I think you're right that they're probably like they're, you know, overclassification is a kind of persistent issue. And part of it is like there, there are few incentives within the government to declassify or whatever, underclassify, if you will. But, but what I was also going to say <laughs> is that what's interesting about the way that technology has developed over the last century is that a lot of the sort of like big technological advances, especially with regards to like defense and national security, used to be born secret. And what I mean by that is like they were developed in military labs, they were they were classified, etc. If you think about nuclear weaponry, etc. And a lot of the the major technological advances that are happening today are born open. And what I mean by open is like they're not happening in the government context. They may be at a company that has intellectual property protection, et cetera, but like they're they're happening much more in the kind of public domain, right? Like things like machine learning and artificial intelligence, for example. And that is, I think, both sort of positive for innovation and commercial development and so forth, but it, it presents this big risk because you end up in a world in which that technology is just much more diffuse and could be used by lots of different actors with lots of different agendas. And it's just much less controlled. So I don't know. I mean, I think there is an issue with the overclassification on the one hand. On the other hand, I would say the I think the general arc of technological development over time has probably leaned toward things being more diffuse and more open and more sort of decentralized and fragmented among different companies and, and academic research labs and so forth. But but that's that that is sort of my anecdotal sense, I would say. So this is maybe like way too big a question for us to try to grapple with here. But do you think it's better and safer for us to have a more diffuse tech research ecosystem? I think specifically around AI, 
and all this conversation, not just around deep fakes, which are clearly going to be a problem, but around discriminatory algorithms and those type of things. Like, at least if it's in the government, I can FOIA. I know who the people are, the level, the levers of power are democratic. If it's like Elon Musk behind a bunch of non-disclosure agreements making something in secret, is that better? It's funny that you say that because I actually think there's a lot of people in the tech world that would feel exactly the opposite. They're like, at least when it's at a company, you kind of know what their agenda is, right? And like they're trying to make money and they're building a product and they're trying to sell tools, etc. We don't know what the government is doing with this with these tools or these technology. We'd rather it be out of the hands of government. So I think it really depends like where you sit. I don't know. I don't think I can answer the question of like whether, you know, normatively whether it is like better or worse or good or bad for it to be located in one place versus another. I do think that in general, like if we if we want to be competitive with other nations in the world, like we need the best and brightest to be working on these tools. And that's not just concentrated in Washington, federal agencies that, you know, that is across the board, including in many cases, primarily private sector. I guess like my, my two things that I just want to put a pin in, and maybe we'll come back to this in the future, but one is the tech people that you are generously quoting are correct and that we know the motives of businesses is to make money. But then we just end up with addictive software that plays to our base instincts and extracts money from people. You know what I mean? Like it's it's great that I know that tobacco companies are trying to get me addicted to cigarettes, but it doesn't make cigarettes less addictive. And then the the other piece is that like, Yes, ostensibly businesses are working for money just the same way that ostensibly the U.S. Defense Department is working towards American security, right? We're now talking about businesses that have market caps of like a trillion dollars, more than a trillion dollars. Like that's bigger than many small countries and are far less democratic than many countries. And so it's interesting to think that the capitalist money motive is like comfort to some people that they think that, ah, like Apple is only trying to do what's best for their bottom line. Like, we don't know. Like, they've got a ton of money. They could be doing anything that they think is good for them long term. The privacy play being like a clear example of them doing something that is good for them, but maybe not good for the ecosystem. I don't know. There's a lot there. The second thing that I sort of wanted to, to talk about is the process in China that you mentioned. Uh, It just seems like over the last few weeks, there have been a bunch of, there's at least been more international coverage of these protests, uh, whether it's in Guangzhou, where there was a big Foxconn factory, that's the biggest factory for iPhones, where they had a COVID outbreak, sent all their workers home, brought in a bunch of scab workers. Those workers then protested because they didn't feel like their contracts were being fulfilled. And then more recently, there was an apartment fire in a room key which is a big city in the Xinjiang province, which, as a reminder, is home to many Uyghurs who the Chinese government is committing a genocide against. But they felt like they couldn't put out this fire effectively enough because of the COVID restrictions. So now there are these big blowups all over the country. And I want to sort of do a linkage with that to the Iran situation in Iran, which we're hoping to talk about soon on the podcast. But It seems like there are a bunch of protests popping up in places where 
there aren't relief valves for this type of thing, and it's unclear what they'll do. I've talked I've spoken to a few Iranian experts that basically throw their hands up and say, like, we don't know what's going to happen in Iran. And I feel like similarly now I'm in a group text with a bunch of Chinese experts and they're all sort of like, maybe someone will step down. Maybe it will open up a little bit. But then they like list off like nine things that they haven't done that would show that. And so what do you make of this? And how do you think the China situation is going to move forward, especially on the the angle of like tech supply chains and that kind of thing? Can you say more about what you mean by like release valves in these situations? Yeah. So as we've talked about, or at least I think we've talked about this, it is we've had so many conversations, it's hard to figure out what's on air and what's off air. But there are a variety of issues that are plaguing every country in in the world right now. Inflation. Uh, the energy crunch, food issues, and COVID, plus climate change, like, like you know, just like numer off the list. And in a few countries, you've seen there be release valves for the type of anger people are feeling. So the Italian government crumbled, uh, and now it's elected like a crypto fascist, which isn't great, but like they had an election where people voted and it was free and fair. In the UK, you saw like what, like three prime ministers over the course of like four weeks in the U S we had the midterms. So like if people had feelings about it, they could go and express those views for good or for ill. And in authoritarian countries, you don't have those release valves where you can, you can sort of say, ah, like you're angry. Here is this thing that I am giving you, or here's a way to express that resentment in a positive way. That's an interesting angle because I feel like the inherited wisdom is that like democracies are more chaotic and more volatile in some ways. And yet like authoritarian regimes have more like control over their populations, right? At least, you know, when things are going quote unquote well. And yet actually maybe an underappreciated feature of democratic styles of governance is that there are these built in release valves, as you say, that actually like you increase stability and security when people have ways of, of like expressing displeasure. Anyway, yeah, I just I well, haven't I'm, thought about it in exactly those terms. So I, I mean like it's that. a it's a resiliency and brittleness thing, right? Democracies, as chaotic as they are, and Lord knows we've seen a lot of chaos recently in democracies, they're super resilient. Like it just takes a lot to move out of a democratic mindset into an authoritarian one. So that's why even though Italy has elected a, a someone who even charitably has some ties to fascism, I'm not super worried about the future of Italy. Like it would take them a long time to go from democratic to fascist. Whereas I think specifically about the conversation we had with Jacob Stokes a few weeks ago about China and the steering committee of the Chinese Communist Party has basically been purged of all non-Xi allies. And so now there's not even dissent within the upper ranks of the party. And so that means, similar to Russia, right? Like, all it's going to take is for, like, these protests to continue and continue and continue. And then just, like, something pops off, you know, someone gets shot that doesn't mean to get shot, or, like, someone gets garroted in their <laughs> in their car. And then, like, the whole system just explodes, right? Because there's only one person holding it all together or one like entity holding it all together. And so 
it's interesting to see what will happen because it's going to take a lot of pressure before that explosion will actually happen. But what do you think about the China situation? I feel like I'm in kind of a wait and see stance right now where it's like, you know, in some ways, I think everybody, though, like the world could have seen this coming. I mean, tolerance for, for zero, zero COVID policies, especially when the rest of the world is sort of, you know, getting back on its feet, I, you know, I think had its own limitations. But I'll be very curious to see what the official response looks like and where things go from there. But I think it's a very good point that if you have a consolidation of power in in upper ranks and lack of dissent there as well, in some ways you may have a more sort of unified government, but I sort of wonder how long that lasts, right? And my guess would be that at a certain point you see fracturing and that happens all the way up and down the, tra- the chain. So I don't know. I, I don't know that I have views yet. I think I'm, it's something I'm watching. What do you think, at least from a tech business angle? I mean, we've seen Apple move supposedly by like 2024, 2025, like 25% of their iPhone manufacturing to India. Do you think that this will push more companies out or push more companies to diversify? Or do you think this is just kind of like, it's China, baby, this is what you get? I think that you're going to see a continuation of the trend of of people trying to either onshore supply chains or look for, you know, other alternatives. Um, I actually was just reading uh, over the weekend an article in The New Yorker by Dexter Filkins, um, who, you know, great writer wrote the Forever War and has done a lot of coverage in the Middle East, but he's he sort of set his turned his sights to to Taiwan and specifically, you know, the the semiconductor industry. One of the things that I found really interesting about it, you know, there's a lot of indications that, you know, China may be readying itself to 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 do a real uh, you know, sort of serious takeover, um, not just of the semiconductor industry, but the but Taiwan as a whole. And yet there's this relative lack of of sort of urgency or concern, at least on the ground in Taiwan. Um, and that some of that might be sort of strategic and some of it may also perhaps be misguided, hard to know. But if you look at the number of military exercises and so forth that are happening right off of the coast of Taiwan, there is very much a sense among, I think, lots of watchers that, that Taiwan's future, but also the future of some of these technological supply chains is, is definitely in the balance. So I had a conversation with someone who focuses on North Korea recently, and they'd been to Seoul. And of course, there have been these massive drills, both from the South Korean and American side and from the North Korean side. And they were like, everyone in Seoul Seoul is chill. Like, they're not worried about this. I I browse uh, Korean newspapers every morning. Uh, because, you know, this is my lot in life, but um, none of them, you know, North Korea is rarely the like top story. And so I wonder how much of the Taiwan, let's say, laissez-faire attitude towards this is because like, honestly, it's just like too big to deal with. Like, it's just, it's hard to, it's hard to think about those things and then not just become like a doomsday prepper, right? What would you like to see in terms of 
focus on the semiconductor issue from the U.S. We passed the CHIPS Act. We've done some movement in the right direction. But there are a lot of like supply chain issues up and down the supply chain, right? It's not just the end fab that has to be, that's the factory that builds this, the, the semiconductors, but it's like even the machines in the fab have like one supplier and they're like German or something. So what could we do? Like, like we're not moving fast enough, obviously, but like what would be at least a sign that we are moving in the right direction beyond the CHIPS Act? Yeah. Um. Well, your last part there, beyond the chip fact, I think is, is tricky. What I was going to say is one of the things that I'll be interested to see how it develops over time are these like regional tech hubs, which are sort of like it's described or are kind of like outlined in the chip Act. But the idea is that you are, you know, creating real sort of like technological prowess and concentration in different cities across the U.S. that maybe historically have not had those types of industries. And it's not just in semiconductors, it can be in lots of different fields. Um, but I I think that that is, you know, an interesting way of like revitalizing a lot of local economies, you know, enabling a, a spread of a sort of skills and knowledge that isn't just so concentrated in Silicon Valley or, or New York or, or whatever. And I think also could be very healthy from a national security perspective. So that's, that's like the piece that I We'll be interested to see whether or not that ultimately is a success. What about you? I I, I want to I want to turn that question around on you. Oh, uh, well, you know, I I don't know anything about anything, which is the hard part about doing podcasts like this. Uh, I think what I would like to see more of is more of an effort from our allies to make it clear that this is a priority for them too, and not just like the UK, like I need to see the EU moving quickly on this. Um, And then also like Canada and Mexico, like it seems like those are the clear best and easiest relationships for us to move manufacturing to. Like obviously NAFTA for all of its flaws has worked fairly well in the regard of like, it's easy to build a factory in Mexico and move cars to the US. And it should be easy for us to do the same thing with semiconductors. And it seems to me that everyone outside of the U.S. is concerned that the more they do to make themselves resilient to the Chinese supply chain, the more it will look like they're siding with America. And that that's problematic for them because, you know, China's their biggest trading partner. Like Europe wants the strategic autonomy from the U.S. to like be like, we're our own person here. We're not you know, tied to your national security policies. But it just seems like what that means is we want to be softer on China rather than we want to go in a different direction on foreign policy. And so I'd like to see more fabs pop up in, you know, Germany. I'd want to see some fabs pop up in Toronto. You know, I want to see more people working hard in other parts of the world to make themselves resilient. Because ultimately, if China does take Taiwan, it's going to be all of us. It'll be all of us using dishwasher chips to try to make the next iPhone, which is not helpful for anybody. Yeah. And I think hopefully over time, it it, it doesn't seem like such a bifurcation, right? It's like actually these advanced, you know, manufacturing capabilities are, you know, are spread among lots of countries and allies, etc. Um, and maybe that reduces the uh, 
the sense that it is about, you know, aligning with the U.S. vis-a-vis China, etc. So, I mean, I um, think that's the hardest thing is like it's unclear what China is going to look at and say this is a poke in our eye. Right. right like right. like every, right. everything people do and say around Taiwan or around tech just ultimately comes back to this like U.S.-China fight. Yeah. Even though it doesn't have to. Right. Mm -hmm. No one like no one says it has to be this way. But like India is an offering an alternative. Europe is an offering an alternative. Right. Canada, Australia, like none of them are offering alternatives. They're just kind of weaker or stronger on the two sides, which Mm -hmm. doesn't help anybody. Great. You mentioned North Korea before, and that was actually the subject. One of the topics that I have been following, which is that and this is sort of like a second installment in this topic, but. Uh, Kim Jong-un's daughter um, has now been sort of trotted out in front of the public and in front of the media on two different occasions very recently. She's only about 10 years old, people believe, but she is the first confirmed, publicly confirmed child that has been, you know, sort of publicly revealed. And it's sparking a lot of you know, and it's been mostly at these sort of ceremonial events. You know, she's with her father visiting different military sites, like the, the you know, witness the launch of a new um, intercontinental ballistic missile, etc. But I, it, it's prompting a lot of questions about whether or not there's some sort of succession planning in the works here, um, which, you know, with a 10 year old feels very uh, maybe a little premature, who knows, or whether this is mostly about you know, sort of modifying Kim Jong image and, and and sort of making him seem, you know, more kind of uh, approachable and familial and all those things. So it's been it's been sort of interesting to watch that. But I'd love to hear what you think, Grant, and whether we sh- we are collectively reading much much more into these uh, into these public displays than we should be. I mean, maybe it's just like bring your daughter to work day. Yeah, I was going to ask when your father revealed your existence, in what context? Like, was he revealing a, a nuclear bomb? Was he like shooting you to the moon? Like, what did that look like? I think this is just so odd. I don't know what to make of this. I mean, uh, it's called the Hermit Kingdom for a reason, right? There's so many secrets and so little access that it's really hard to say. And like, we're sitting over here trying to psychoanalyze like a you know, a middle-aged North Korean man who, like, none of us have, like, or very few of us have a good reference point for what that world is even potentially like. And so it's hard to think about what this means. I mean, the the situation in North Korea is clearly not great. There are not a lot of ways for us to back off. It seems like South Korea is taking a much more hardline stance, which is, I guess, fine, but like that didn't work the first time. I don't think it'll work this time. I'm not sure what else we can do that's not sort of unilaterally pulling back. I think in terms of what this daughter reveal means, I think you're absolutely right that it's softening his image or trying to soften his image. Because if you look at Putin's secret family, it's very secret. And it's that way for a reason, because his he wants the visual to be like hyper masculine man, not like family man gazing upon his missiles with his teenager. It's really interesting because there's pretty stark differences between countries on this, right? Like it is such a 
classic archetype or cliche of American politicians that when you're running for office, your whole family is around you. They come onto stage after you give a speech, et cetera. Like, you know, family is like so front and center. And in so many, you know, U.S. elections, uh, spouses, children, relatives, et cetera, like become part of the part of what you're electing. Right. Um, And so I think it's a really good point that you know, in the case of Russia and Putin, you know, it's like the the sensibilities are totally, totally the opposite. And actually, it feels a little top of mind in the US because, you know, there's been, at least in the sort of like fashion world, it feels like there's been a lot of coverage of Naomi Biden's wedding. And and it, it made me think a little bit about like the royal wedding in the UK and do Americans secretly like wish that we had, you know, a whole royal family that we could that we could spend time, you know, gossiping about and looking at beautiful photos of, et cetera, because it felt the closest to like a royal wedding that we've had. And that's, you know, a granddaughter of the of the sitting president. And so it couldn't be more it couldn't be more on the other end of the spectrum when it comes to North Korea and a single glance at a at a 10 year old. So anyway, I think that's an interesting sort of connection. Like, I haven't thought a lot about the Naomi Biden wedding. Other than the extent to which, like, I thought the Vogue photo shoot was quite nice. But ah, it is, it's interesting to think about families as soft power in some way, right? And what their use is for politicians. And in the US, I do think it's part of our DNA to like people who are family centric, even if that is clearly a veneer, right? Like, you know, I don't tend to think of Donald Trump as being like an awesome father, but his family is always kind of hanging around. And the same thing is true. Like if you actually listen to or like read Michelle Obama's book, she talks about the struggles of being married to someone so ambitious and ultimately being in the presidency. And it is that is really an interesting point to think about the role of the spouses and the families. Because like there was a whole conversation about Xi Jinping's wife, who was like a, a big deal and was like an actress, and Xi's wife and Putin's wife and mistress and this and that. Like it, it, I don't know whether it's just like the gossipy part of our brain really likes that, or if it is something about the way humans think about societies and the way we think about our leaders. And that story we tell about them is really important. But regardless, listener. We hope you enjoyed this no guest special, and we hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving if you celebrate. With that, thanks for joining us. Next in Foreign Policy is produced in cooperation with Foreign Policy for America's Next Gen Initiative and is a proud member of the DSR Network. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. You can follow me online at Grant Haver and follow Zoe at Z Weinberg. If you are a foreign policy expert under 40 and want to be featured on the show, be sure to follow the link in the show notes. This week's episode is brought to you by the same three World Cup commercials that run during every break in the action. The pummeling will continue until you purchase our products, and even then, we will be stuck in your brain forever. So after you buy a new car, a new phone, and watch everything on Amazon Prime, Join us in two weeks to hear more about what's next in foreign policy.